0: Hello, my friends, and welcome back to your Friendly Neighborhood podcast. This is Conversations with the Mind, and I'm Shane Lamaster, your host. And I'm here with my very special co-host, Tank Lamaster, my large South African Borble mastiff. Uh, he's about 10 years old, and he loves being in on the show, even though he doesn't really say much. Um, he just likes being in the same room, so... Welcome him in too. All right, welcome to the show, folks. First and foremost, I want to say thank you for listening to the show. That's the best support you can possibly give us. Our listenership continues to grow, uh, and I checked it today, and we are almost at ten thousand listens to our podcast. And uh, that's a huge that's a huge deal for me. Anyway, I never, you know, I never really had any expectation that this thing would uh, take off, uh, and you know it's moderately taken off but it's uh, it's been really fun in the process and that's the most important piece for me um, is how much I really enjoy it so 10,000 listens wow um, you know I'm I'm uh, I'm flattered I'm flattered that so many of you um, took the time and Listen to my voice, ramble on about uh, stuff that I have no idea about. Uh, I'm not an expert, but I like to inform myself as much as possible and help to spread whatever I learn to you. So thanks for listening. Uh, If you like, oh, there he was. Did you hear him? Oh, yeah, you can hear him being, you know, with his big old flappy lips a little bit okay anyway um if you like the podcast please like and share on whatever social media you are seeing it on Uh, i do post these episodes on social media both the youtube version and the audio version so please like and share those and i think what works a little bit better than liking and sharing on facebook is telling friends so um share it just uh verbally you know let your friends know or um I don't know. Did you follow through with that experiment I gave you guys a few episodes ago where I asked you guys to text a couple people, just the name of the podcast, and tell them, um, you know, that you think that they'd like it. Uh, So that's another way to share it, too, is through text message. I like that way. I like getting my suggestions um, firsthand from somebody that I trust. So... Please like and share the podcast. Uh, there's no obligation, but if you want to, if you find value in this show, feel free to donate. There is a link at the bottom of whatever podcast app you're listening to, and you can be uh, you can become one of my sponsors or supporters. Um, all right, also check out the YouTube page, guys. Go over there and support us over there. Um, like and subscribe to the YouTube page. That's Mind Ops, um, M-I-N-D hyphen O-P-S YouTube page. Um, there, I have a collection of uh, playlists with all sorts of different um, philosophical videos. Um, some are biographies. Some are on uh, actual topics that we talk about on here. I have some videos that I created back in the day um, about um, you know therapeutic intervention and. And, um, you know, gave suggestions and tools on a variety of subjects to uh, anybody who's interested. Those are all free. And then also over there is our video uh, version of this podcast. So I try and do it on GoPro um, whenever I have my guests live here or I do it uh, through the Zoom video chat app and try and put all those videos up on YouTube for your viewing pleasure. Uh, If you like a guest and you want to see what they look like or um, I don't know. Uh, I don't know why you'd go over there to look at my face, Uh, but yeah, if you want to go check out a guest, for sure, um, go to the YouTube page and like and subscribe to that as well. All right, guys, uh, we are going to bring on some Arturo Complex tunes for you, so sit back, relax, and keep on enjoying the show. Here we go. Okay, it's time to turn those frowns upside down with a good news story. Today, coming from the GoodNewsNetwork.org, uh, I found this really cool article, and the title of the article reads: "Rather than slip into depression, man quits job, sells possessions, and travels the world with a ferret." Um, pretty interesting story. This guy—he's <laughs> a former airman, twenty-five-year-old Charlie Hamerton. Um, so, I think he is from the UK. Was part of their Royal Air Force or something. But this twenty-five-year-old guy who, um, you know, he says in the article how he had, you know, he had a good flat, he had three cars, you know, he had a great amount of savings, and then in one year, his mom died uh, after suffering from motor neuron disease. His best friend Will died as well, who was only twenty-two um, from suspected overdose, and then also in the same year, his adopted mom Samantha passed away from a heart attack. So. All at once, and that's how these um, things—I don't know—in my experience, in my observation, that's how some of these really tragic things tend to happen. Um, You know, I'm sure some of you guys have seen references to like the rule of three on some movies or something that you've seen, where bad things or good things tend to happen in threes. Um, But you've also heard terms like "when it rains, it rains," or you know, "when it when it rains, it really rains," or something like that. And um, I totally just butchered that. But anyway, like for me in my life, like if one thing goes really wrong, and then like I am devastated or I'm so focused on it, um, I think more things tend to happen because I'm so focused in on that side of the mental spectrum. You know, I'm I'm thinking negatively. I'm thinking in depression. I'm I'm catastrophizing. I'm you know running all these horrible outcomes and scenarios through my brain, and that only helps to set me up and set up my behaviors for those things to actually manifest. So, um, when something that's just something interesting, um, when something goes wrong, oftentimes many things go, go wrong. And for this guy, uh, three very close people in his life, ...died in the same year. He says, uh, it was horrible for me, but I didn't want to get in a rut because of all of it. So very good self-awareness. He said, I did think about killing myself a couple times because I didn't know where to turn. So feeling really lost, um, feeling in a rut, feeling depressed, um, you know. And he decided to put, uh, he decided to turn his back on his career in the military... And uh, shore up all of his assets into cash, and go on a globe-trotting adventure with his best friend, which is a ferret named Bandit. Really cool. Um, and there's some good pictures here on GoodNewsNetwork.org showing uh, showing Hamerton and Bandit. Really cool. So let's see. He shored up about uh, nineteen thousand five hundred dollars in U.S. Dollars, uh fifteen thousand uh what is it, pounds these days? Anyway, says he ventured through Holland, Germany, Sweden, Norway, France, Spain, and Italy, uh, all with his ferret. Uh, they traveled for a total of eight months uh to more than twenty five towns and cities in eleven countries, and he documented the whole thing on his Facebook page. Um, yeah, it looks like they were snapping uh, funny photos together in front of um, in front of some landmarks. There's a really good one of, of the ferret in front of uh, the Eiffel Tower. He looks huge. He looks like a Godzilla about to eat this tower. It's pretty cool. Um, but um, Hamerton says that you know traveling in this way was one of the most uh, amazing experiences of his life and was completely liberating. Um, and he got to spend it with his best friend. He says he's a lot. He has a lot less money now, but he's a much wealthier of a person because of the experiences that he had. Um, let's see, uh, Bandit, the ferret. If you were wondering, was a rescue from an animal sanctuary, and they've been inseparable ever since. Even when uh, Charlie was in the Royal, yep, there it is, the Royal Air Force. Um, the ferret would stay with him um, at his military barracks. Pretty interesting. I didn't uh, think that animals like that were allowed um, within the barracks, but I guess so. All right, let's see. What else in this story? Um, okay, so in addition to just traveling, they've raised a, awareness for different charities. I really liked this part of the article. Um, so it says they walked across Hadrian's Wall in aid of the motor neuron disease charity MND. And skateboarded 40 miles across London in aid of a drug awareness charity. Um, In 2018, uh, Tim released a book about his travels called Before Our Adventures, which is available on Amazon. Um, And he says the book is all about how you can take anything bad and turn it into something really good. Um, Everyone has the right and the ability to do that. It's easy to get stuck in a rut, but there's no need to. Um, I'm going to keep reading these quotes from him cause they're really quite good. He said, I went through a really tough time and developed serious depression. I felt suicidal and just didn't know what to do with myself. A chain of bad things had happened to me and I had a good reason to feel really miserable about my life, but I decided that was not what I wanted to be. I didn't want this to define me. I channeled the negative energy and turned it into something positive. All right. So now, uh, Charlie works in schools across the country. Um, Um, of the UK I'm assuming still Um, works across the country as a teacher teaching youngsters about how to build confidence self esteem and outdoor living skills such as camping and bushcraft so I thought that was a really cool story a lot of really interesting components um, you know struggles with um, you know mental health issues that can come to any of us um, you know due to life circumstances and uh, really hopeful story of, um, a person really taking charge of, of that mindset and saying, you know what, I am feeling this and this is really hard, but I'm going to channel this in a way that, um, I can get some happiness out of it in the long term. And I really admire, um, this guy for doing something like this. It's something I've always wished I could do. Uh, and I'm sure, you know, I say, I wish I could do it, but I can do it. I just haven't chosen to do it yet. I have, um, too many attachments to to my current everyday life, um, things that i 'm trying to fulfill and complete, and uh, yeah, I, I'm not willing to just drop all that right now to just go travel, but maybe someday I really hope that that becomes a part of my journey um, as well, so really cool, okay, conversation with my mind, so i 'm going to give you a piece of my mind today and it's in relation to what you're about to hear in the podcast with the guest and i've been thinking about this idea that consciousness itself might not be a thing um so oftentimes we think about uh consciousness as maybe like this substance of some sort like a cloud of um plasma you know undulating with activity but, kind of um, light enough that it 's floating in the air somehow or connecting everything else, um, but also transparent because we can 't necessarily just see uh, waves of consciousness out in the empty space between <coughs> excuse me between objects and between ourselves, so I was thinking about this, and how how i 've been going through tons of different theories on consciousness and just reading up on different theories and, and how they all kind of um, try and explain what it is all coming close, but none really nailing it down. And uh, it's been an interest of mine to try and, you know, combine or synthesize a number of um, particular theories on consciousness that I, I guess have, have been drawn to uh, some intellectually drawn to and some, Literally, I'll read it and I'll be drawn to it because I feel this like feeling in my heart that like, oh, there's something here. So, um, a few of, uh, theories put forth that consciousness is like this thing, this energy force, this, you know, it has substance. Um, but I just had this flash thought the other day that maybe consciousness is not necessarily a thing, but it may be in fact, instead be the interactions or spaces between things, you know, and I use air quotes with things. So most people think of things as like me and you and this computer in front of me and this microphone in front of me and my dog is a thing and uh, the coffee I drank this morning is a thing. It has some uh, substance out in the real world. Even things like wind, you know, is a thing. It could be measured. Um, You know, what else? Um, yeah, I think you get it. I think you, you get the idea of what most people think of as a thing, but, um, but all these things interact, right? And, uh, my guests and I will get into this a little bit today, but you know, we interact with our environments, our environments act back on us, and there's a lot more interaction going on than we know about, um you know there's a lot more that we do know about that you just can't see things like um microbiomes that co-mingle you know if you come in contact with a friend and you hug them your microbiome and their microbiome just had an interaction and you exchanged bacteria and uh dust mites and all sorts of things um as you were hugging you just didn't see them so it's interesting that um consciousness could be not these things, you know, like panpsychism says that um, everything has consciousness, uh, that every object or every molecule has some semblance of consciousness, and, and maybe the coalescence of a whole bunch of these consciousness together is what you know creates us, because we are trillions of atoms, uh, but we're also uh, mostly not even human. you know most of our body uh, is made out of uh, other organisms, bacterias and um, you know, things like that. Uh, literally like most of your body is not even yours. It's a whole bunch of different organisms working together in symbiosis to create this larger system, which, um, helps feed the bacteria. It helps, um, you know, protect its kids. It, you know, it's like we're a super organism combined of all these other organisms, but I digress. So Consciousness might not be a thing, but may be the interaction or spaces between these things and That was really interesting thought to me because when I think of consciousness i don 't think of it as a static thing i i 've always thought of it as something that 's always flowing, something that 's always in motion, um, whether it be my consciousness or the collective consciousness or consciousness of Um, plants or whatever I think it's always moving always changing always adapting always getting feedback and and integrating that feedback and trying to um, trying to live more efficiently trying to find some kind of balance where it can live as long as possible and you know it's these these interactions between things that that are most interesting because it seems like it's the interactions that are the catalyst for things to change, right? So if there's like a, I don't know, as simple as this. So there's like a, a grass field um, that's been untouched for a little while and the the ground is damp, so it's a little squishy, but the grass is an ecosystem, right? This field of grass is an ecosystem. There's lots of bugs and plants and, um, you know, the grass says consciousness and, you know, there's collective, um, network sharing underneath the, the ground and all sorts of things and bugs and, um, there's, it's an ecosystem. But if I were to start walking across that field in, uh, let's say in snowshoes, which would look really weird, um. But say I'm walking across that thing in snowshoes, and I'm leaving big imprints in the grass, like tamping it down, um, probably killing some some organisms as I'm walking, um, definitely uh, damaging um, the plant life and probably sending off or setting off within the within the grass, you know, plants have this this thing that's been studied, it's really cool, where they can communicate. In a variety of different ways, some send off pheromones, some send electrical signaling to each other. But once I tamp down on on that grass, the grass that I stepped on, their root system is going to send probably electrical and chemical signaling to all the surrounding grass, letting them know, like, oh my god, we're in danger. Something's stepping on us. Something's smothering us. And it was my foot, or that interaction between. These two things between myself and the grass, it was that interaction that we had that spurred consciousness action on the part of the plant to communicate to the other parts of the plant, right? Um, That might be a little far-fetched for some some of you guys to... to integrate into your mindset. But that's, that's how plants work. Uh, It's really cool. And uh, it sounds like a fantasy, but it is freaking awesome. And, um, but the same thing happens between us, between humans. So think about an interaction you had um, on your way to work or on your way to school today, like that interaction that you had with whatever it was, maybe it was on your drive, but the interaction that you had with that other thing is the catalyst that started your uh, your thoughts your rumination your anger your your happiness you know it made you smile or it made you get pissed off when the guy cut you off right It was the interaction, not the thing itself that did it to you but the the interaction between that thing and you right so i just an interesting thought that 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 interaction might be um might be consciousness it may be um you know it maybe needs to be something that's studied a little bit further i know in buddhism uh we do a really cool meditation it's one of my favorites where uh it's just you know you take the standard breathing meditation where you focus on the breath the in breath and the out breath but then you start to notice that there's a little gap between every in breath and every out breath like at the peaks And once you recognize that that's there, you can start to play with it and mess around with it in your meditation. It's really fun and it's really cool to extend that gap in between and maybe hold your breath at the peaks a little bit or to just notice what's there. What's there between those two actions, right? Because the in-breath is an action and the out-breath is an action. And what's there between those two actions is this space between and oftentimes It feels very spacious, very much like nothingness, right? Uh, Between these two actions, now there's nothing. Never, there's never nothing going on. Although subjectively, when you're breathing and you're focusing just on the breath, if you pause the breath, that's what you're going to be aware of—is that space, that gap. But again, there's there's never nothing going on. So while you may have like this experience of nothingness and clear uh, clear mindset and things like that. You know, there's your heart's still beating, your metabolism's still going, these cells in your body are still moving, um, you know, there's a lot of stuff still going on, but it gives you an opportunity to kind of pause for a second and look at that gap between the actions. In Western society, we're so oriented towards action, and go, 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 and... Sleep when you're dead and work 100 hours a week and go, 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 you know. And what we find is that when we break through or we understand that that's just a construct that has been fed to us and we have a choice not to engage in um, that kind of mindset that the rest of society is moving at, we can remove ourselves from that game a little bit. Uh, I mean you still got to go to work, you still got to do the things you got to do to, you know, keep a roof over your head and support your family. Um, but we get a little opportunity to remove ourselves from the game consciously and say, you know what? Everyone else can keep doing this this thing where they're just go go going all the time and burning the candle at both ends, probably shortening their lifespan. For all these small little dopamine hits when they try and achieve things. Or I can remove myself from it and um, really sit in the space between action and enjoy not doing anything and enjoy just sitting there listening to nature or enjoy, um, you know, just sitting there with my dog, not really doing anything, not. Not uh, doing homework, not doing anything, but just laying there next to him. And, you know, I love just laying there and staring into his eyes. I swear I can see galaxies in there uh, in the black space. And that's, you know, that's just taking advantage of that space between action. So I'm not going to go too much longer on that. That's where my mind's been today. Very, very special guest today. Uh, We have Dr. Michael Winkleman on the podcast. And Dr. Winkleman, in my opinion... um, i don 't know how how people actually get rated in the field, but in my opinion, Dr. Winkleman is one of the um, one of the leading experts right now in the field of consciousness um, consciousness exploration um, and trying to find the answers to explain consciousness um, dr winkelman 's most recent article is entitled uh, or not most recent the one he sent me um, let 's see which was uh, ninety six actually. Um, from the Journal of Social and Evolutionary Systems. I guess he sent this to me to read because it, it outlines his particular view of consciousness. And it's entitled Neurophenomenology and Genetic Epistemology as a Basis for the Study of Consciousness. And we'll get into what that means in the podcast, so don't worry about the big words. But um, in general, um, I, if I if I understood him right, um, he believes that consciousness um, is this interaction with knowing, uh, the, the, interaction with, um, gaining knowledge or of turning knowledge into wisdom or t- turning knowledge into action. These are all what he, um, would term as consciousness. And, uh, you know, he's, he's largely based in, um, brain science and, um, and things like that. So like I said, I'm not going to butcher it. I'll let him speak for himself and we'll get right into it. Uh, we talk about all sorts of cool things in the, in the show today. I hope you really like it. Um, Let me see. Is this important? Oh, yeah. This is interesting. Something I didn't even get to ask him. I'm just going to throw it out there. Uh, maybe I'll put it in the outro. So all right. All right. Let's get into the show. I hope you really like it. Uh, thank you to Dr. Michael Winkerman for coming on the show. And here we go. This is the Conversations with the Mind podcast, where we explore consciousness through conversations with interesting people. Our mission is to engage the collective mind piece by piece to bring greater clarity of mind to our listeners locally and across the planet, and to contribute to broaden the shared experiential knowledge and wisdom of existence. Okay, folks, welcome back to Conversations with the Mind. I'm your host, as always, Shane LeMaster. And I'm here with very special guest, Dr. Michael Winkleman. How are you, sir?
1: Doing great. Thanks,
0: Shane. It's nice to be here. And did I say your name correctly? Yeah. Okay, perfectly. Um, Okay, so the first question is the same for everybody, and that is um, that the title of the podcast is Conversations with the Mind. And I'm just wondering, from your perspective, since you are an individual consciousness, um, and this is sort of my attempt to... Uh, start cataloging um, connections between consciousness what does that title mean to you and how does it it land what sort of things come to your mind when you think of conversations with the mind
1: well I guess I've been a a little influenced by Buddhism in the sense of thinking as the mind is sort of this you know partially tamed monkey that's always trying to be out of control with all the little inputs that it has. <laughs> so I mean, that would be one view of it as sort of this, this semi-autonomous information processing complex that is pulled in lots of different directions by the underlying brain, by the experiences of the person, and ultimately by you know the demands of the situation. But we can also think of you know the mind as a little bit of a of a higher order kind of organizational principle that tries to bring together the diverse inputs from sensations and perceptions and memories and intentions and emotions and you know modulate it in a way that allows the organism to be functional so we'll go more in that direction mind is something that helps us be more functional and handling a lot of different kinds of information
0: so functionality being maybe a key driver of a lot of evolutionary processes including maybe the mind as well and maybe consciousness. But, um, do you see any other, maybe, um, outside the box purposes for the mind other than just, uh, functionality and, and, um, perpetuating the species and things like that. Do you see other aspects such as like mysticism and spirituality and, and, um, I don't know. Um, awakening as something maybe beyond the the physical or the biological needs of the organism?
1: Well, I mean, some of those things I would consider to be part of our, you know, biological needs, you know, a a pursuit of meaning, you know, a pursuit of answers to ultimate questions. Uh, But I'd also think that when we come to addressing questions about, for instance, spirituality, I mean, to me, mind is something that, Probably gets in the way more than, you know, leads us to those things. I have this view of mind as sort of this chatterbox that's constantly giving us, you know, directions and explanations and excuses, and that gets in the way of the direct experience of, you know, the more fundamental aspects of consciousness and, you know, the bases of spiritual experience and things like this. I, I would think that a lot of mystical traditions would see, you know, the mind is something that has to be first, you know, sort of disciplined and tamed and, and perhaps finally set aside in some ways to allow some deeper neurognostic, neurologically driven ways of knowing to emerge.
0: Hmm. Yeah so again you know going beyond the physical and almost using the mind with this conceptualization as as like a tool that you gain proficiency with and then eventually you don't need the tool anymore um you know what taking it down a layer you know what is what is it using what is the thing that is using the tool what is the you know is mind do you separate mind from consciousness and maybe is consciousness um you know, in one of your papers, you you had a great quote uh, where you said, um, let me quote it real quick, consciousness is the interaction, the relationship between the knower and the known, between mental and physical levels of reality. And when I read that, uh, I, was, I thought of the Buddhist concepts, too, of, of that the true reality or consciousness or what is behind the mind's action is possibly this space between things. The space between the breath, you know, the space between a, a phenomenon and and the observer. Um, you know, this space between, I don't know, maybe is, is the thing that's holding all of this together.
1: Well, I, I wish I'd been able to write down your questions as you spewed them out there. I don't think I kept track of all of them. Uh, I guess the first thing I would say is, you know, we don't, we're not going to get rid of the mind. There are many important things that the mind needs to do for us. But it's sort of like you know, engaging in a particular kind of program that, you know, occupies our processing capacities and keeps us from paying attention to other kinds of information. And, you know, sometimes we need to pay attention to information in the physical world, and the social world. And then other times we're sort of seeking, you know, higher order, you know, explanations or higher order integrations of our experience. And I think that that's where, at least at the first step, I think, as you were saying, the mind has to sort of step out of the way. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the things that was coming to me while you were asking your questions was uh, this notion that the brain has a lot of different kinds of innate modules, I mean, we have innate modules for processing a lot of different kinds of information unconsciously. And, it, it, you know, this is sort of uh, Gardner's notion about innate intelligences where you know the brain processes things pretty much automatically. And I think that the mind is sort of like one of those you know, functional systems that is always putting together a kind of a system of explanation about why we're doing what it is that we're doing now. Rather than being in the now mm-hmm. and so in that sense, I think the mind has to sort of be you know set aside in order to allow some of the more basic forms of, of gnosis to emerge and, and some of these are forms of knowing that existed long before language I mean to me, the mind is sort of you know the the language generating system of explanation, and that's a very recent kind of, of The capacity of human beings in our in our long evolutionary history and to me when we start to get to the roots of consciousness we're and to spirituality in particular we're trying to understand ways in which we knew the world prior to the emergence of these complex language driven programs
0: okay so so it sounds like you do separate consciousness from mind um and you know I'm more interested in the consciousness piece. Um, and you have a background in um, shamanism, um, shamanistic cultures, cross-cultural um, aspects of this as well. And I'm wondering how how other cultures view consciousness um, as opposed to how we in the West see consciousness. Um, and then is there maybe a universal underlying understanding or search for what you're talking about?
1: Tough questions there, Shane. I'll see what I can do. Um, first, I'd go back to the consciousness versus mind. I, I see consciousness as being a much more encompassing construct than mind, which is a very specific form of consciousness. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that you know, consciousness in, in some ways it needs to be understood, as, as you sort of suggested in my quote, some manner of knowing. There's something that is known. And in that sense, all cultures have concepts about how we know the world, although we may not find a a, a neat word that would translate as consciousness. Uh, As far as consciousness goes today, I, I think that one of the problems we have in understanding it is that people have such diverse conceptualizations of just what it is that constitutes a proper exemplar or proper definition of consciousness. Uh, indeed, some of the philosophical traditions would deem anything less than uh, elaborate verbal explanations of why you did what you did to be, you know, the epitome of consciousness. Anything less than that, you know, doesn't really constitute consciousness. I mean, deny consciousness to animals is a long-standing, you know, philosophical posture. Mm-hmm. So to me, we need a really broad understanding of what it is that constitutes consciousness, and I think one that not only enables us to appropriately attribute certain forms of consciousness to lower life forms, uh, but perhaps ultimately to attribute consciousness to non organic systems. And in, in that sense, you know, you might say, well, how can they be conscious? Well, it depends on how it is that you conceptualize consciousness.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you could even conceptualize it as just a, a system that. You know, operates to maintain some kind of homeostasis or balance or something. Um, and I I spoke with um, Dennis McKenna on my podcast a couple weeks ago, and he was talking about, a lot about um, plant consciousness and um, the consciousness of of the entire planet, and you know, Gaia mindsets or approaches to consciousness. Um, you know, in it seems like you know here in the West we discount so many other forms of consciousness that could be out there, you know, with a, a human centric view on, you know, almost a monopoly on this thing, you know, and I think that's to our detriment. Um, I'm wondering if you have, you know, how you incorporate, like you said, um, inorganic matter to consciousness, uh, beyond like post-humanist beyond, you know, our understanding of it from our perspective.
1: Well, I think that the, you know, sort of a key influence in my developing understanding came from a biologist, Bruce Lipton, who had a notion about, you know, the cell membrane as mediating the cell's relationship to the universe. And my take from his work was that, you know, it's what the cell knows is right there at the membrane. It's the mediating structure between inner and outer realities. And to me, this became sort of like a a general model for consciousness in the sense that consciousness is that which mediates what it is that we know. Consciousness is how it is that we're able to take some form of information from the universe and transpose it to something that we can experience vis-a-vis our physiological apparatus and the cognitive structures that organize the information we receive. So, in this sense, I sort of see consciousness as being this ability to respond to information. And in that sense, you know, plants show all kinds of ways of responding to information. You know, they, their roots grow to where water is. You know, their leaves, on a daily basis, orient to the sun, etc. So it's easy to see that plants have ways of responding to what's important about what the universe has out there. They're not just passive recipients. So to me, understanding consciousness means taking what I would call a a neural epistemological approach, Mm -hmm. which is to say that on one hand, we're paying attention to what it is that our bodies can process. What kind of information can our bodies acquire and, and recognizing that most of the information available in the universe is not accessible to our bodies or our own particular instantiation of sensory capacities. Uh, And so we get a limited picture. And then we, we learn how to interpret that limited information. So to me, then, the second part is about epistemology. You know, if we want to understand consciousness, we have to understand how it is that human beings know the world. Epistemology is basically the study of how humans know, and this leads us to some very interesting understandings of consciousness, because one of the very first things it tells us is that we really don't know the universe, we never know the universe directly, that basically we develop models based upon prior experience, and ultimately it is memory and expectations that provide the basis for consciousness. Memory and expectation precede experience. Uh, it's the models, some simulation permitted by our physiological and cognitive capacities that produce consciousness, some form of experience. It, it's stimulated in some ways by the universe, but it's not the universe. So ultimately, consciousness is a model, and that's why two people can stand in the same place and have the same you know, physical universe in front of them and the same stimuli coming in, But they have very different consciousness of the situation It's because their models, their prior experiences, their constructed views is what is going to inform them of what's there. Mm. And I think that this same kind of model can be extended all the way down the great chain of being to other animals. They have different forms of consciousness because they have different forms of physiological capacity to process information. And they have built different kinds of models to interpret that information in terms of their own. No sense of entity. Mm -hmm.
0: That makes a lot of sense, and I'm wondering um, if in your in your journey through your own explorations of what consciousness is, have you come across um, theories? And if you have, how have you felt about it? Theories of consciousness in which um, you know people talk about consciousness as being beyond the body. You know that it doesn't necessarily need this. this receptacle in order to manifest that it, it's maybe out here somewhere that there's a collective stream of consciousness that it, uh, you know, that it can't be measured or, or something like that. And if you have come across a theory such as that, um, which is kind of, you know, I don't know if it, if it plays in with your own um, neuro, uh, did you say neuro epistemological? Neuro epistemological
1: approaches. Yeah. How, how does the study of brain yeah. function? inform us about how it is that we know the world.
0: Right. And so some people argue that consciousness isn't even, um, isn't even, you know, it's larger than our, our body, you know, that it's um, maybe it is, it's larger than the universe or, or that consciousness or the universe can't, it maybe exist without the other Um, things like this. Have you, have you looked into anything or heard anything from others speaking in that way?
1: Well, I, I think that, you know, the really learned people who have explored consciousness experientially would say that consciousness permeates the universe. Mm-hmm. And of course then you have to sort of understand what their notions of consciousness are, but to me it ultimately has to do with some form of of knowing. Mm-hmm. Something has to know for consciousness. And you know, when you know, the leaves shift their orientation to the sun as the sun moves, they're manifesting a form of consciousness. You know, when roots grow to where water is, they're manifesting a form of consciousness. You know, when an animal, you know, moves away from a large, loud noise, they're manifesting a form of consciousness. And there are infinite forms of consciousness, Mm -hmm. in a sense. And the question becomes, well, I mean, which forms of consciousness can we tap into? Mm-hmm. Uh, ordinarily, our forms of consciousness are very limited to our personal preoccupations You know, some people might say driven by the, the circuitry of our default mode network We're sort of mired in our own personal space And, you know, we don't even hear people talk to us or, you know, things around us Because we have a very focused kind of awareness um, But to me, the, the notion that consciousness is a form of information representation for something that, you know, responds to that information and says, yeah, there's all kinds of things in the universe that have some ability to respond to information and even things that we would not attribute central nervous systems to appear to have that capacity. So I I think that this notion of a, you know, information knowledge of some form, some form of representation of information to me gives us this, Generic model to say, yes, consciousness is throughout the universe. It exists in an infinitude of forms, and humans have limited capacities to tap into that. Uh, mm. When we do tap into various forms of information, we often get a lot of different kinds of information that's not related to our personal history, our personal, you know, physiological being. It's things that have no direct connection with us as a, you know, a history of being with a history. So this suggests that consciousness can be acquired from other entities, other forms. We can, in essence, experience the consciousness of others, of other places, of other people, of other animals. And when you, you bring out the shamanic perspective, I mean, this was one of the things that shamans did. They worked on developing access to the consciousness of animals. Mm-hmm. And this was a fundamental power that the shamans acquired, to be able to use the physical and experiential capacities of animals to expand their consciousness of the world. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. And I think I was, I was making it too complicated for myself, um, unfortunately, because it is, I mean, it seems like it's a really complicated topic, but we all experience consciousness and it can be, I think it has the potential to be a a unifying um, aspect that we can all tap into to, you know, overcome things like war and and, um, you know, hatred towards each other and things like that. This, this idea that we all experience this one thing, uh, no matter your age, uh, race, gender, whatever. Um, and I also love how you bring in the idea that consciousness is infinite and that humans can only tune into or tap into certain capabilities within this infinite um, span of possibility um, which gives me, because I come from a sport and performance psychology background, I'm really keyed into you know, how can we optimize human mental function, human physical function, human spiritual function, holistic functioning, and really this optimization by tapping into things that maybe are hidden to us or forgotten um, abilities that we used to have with consciousness that maybe we've lost through time um, and through the lo- the loss of stories around it. I know some traditions still practice a lot of different um, techniques to tap into different abilities within this big spectrum of consciousness. Um, and unfortunately, I see a lot of people still so narrow-mindedly focused on um, you know what we would call objective reality that. You know, they're not stepping out of the side of themselves in uh, non-ordinary states of consciousness or seeking out, um, you know, things like this for personal growth. Um, I guess I don't know what my question is in there, but... uh Let me me
1: take a shot at it here. Please. Objective reality. That is a, you know, total misconstrual of how it is that humans know the world. We don't know objective reality we can't perceive the fundamental principles of how the physical universe functions you know we don't have the capacity to process all kinds of information and if you look at how the brain handles information what what we are quickly led to is that you know we don't actually deal with information from the world i mean you know our, our basic sensations are bundled into perceptions and linked to Memories and affect before we ever have consciousness of the physical world. I mean I would say apart from perhaps some very highly trained meditative adepts, you know We don't have any real connection with objective reality Uh, And what we really live within is a model that we have created a model that we have created by virtue of us being cultural beings who are socialized into certain linguistic systems and certain conceptual frameworks that produce for us a model of what's out there but you know the neurological science is very clear on this you know we deal with models of the world not with objective reality and And i think that this ties in with some of the other questions you had presented to me you know in advance you know what is it that is keeping us from understanding this notion of you know the fundamental sources of reality, the nature of consciousness—it's a philosophical naivety. We don't really understand the nature of human knowledge. People go around with the notion there's an objective reality out there, and there's not. Well, all we do is we live in these little culturally constructed bubbles that, to varying degrees, overlap with other people's culturally constructed frameworks, and we call that objective reality better, it should be called, you know, an intersubjective consensus. But that doesn't mean it's reality. Uh, I like to use the example of the rainbow. You and I can stand in the same place and say, yep, there is a rainbow over there and we can talk about where it is. But the simple fact is that there is not a rainbow out there where we objectively see a rainbow. It's not there. It has to do with complex interactions between water molecules in the air and the angle of incidence of the sunlight and the properties of our eyes and how it processes information. But there's no rainbow out there. So there's no objective reality. And to me, this is one of the big, you know, sort of impediments to a better understanding of consciousness because people are trying to, you know, determine what's really out there. And we're forgetting that all we're seeing is the map. You know, we're never in the territory. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, and it's almost, uh, I've heard it described before that the outer reality is is sort of a reflection of these inner schemas, these inner constructs of self. Uh, can you still hear me okay? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Yeah, that the outer reality is simply a reflection of of our inner reality and, you know, things like if you want to change your outer reality, you first need to go inward and, and change um, the inner constructs. And so, you know, if all our perception of reality is just these these stories, these constructs that we've socially formulated in our minds collectively and individually, to me that, that just screams that there's potential for us to go in there and change those models. So if right now my current model says that I cannot interact with the quantum level and, um, you know, put my hand through this wall next to me, um, then if I can somehow go inside and change the schema in my mind um, to the point where I believe it, then I, I could have the potential to interact with reality in a totally novel and different way. Does that make sense? Well, I mean, partially
1: in, in the sense that we have to try to change our conceptual structures mm-hmm. in order to better understand the nature of, of what's really out there, the operational environment. Um, Charles Laughlin has used these terms, the operational environment and the constructed environment. The operational environment is what's really out there, but we're never going to know what that is. All we're really going to know are these constructed environments, these models we make of the world, and some of them are, are better for some things, and some models are better for other things, and you know, some models can be refined, but we can't forget that they're models. Can we get away from the models? Well, that's what the meditative traditions claim can be done. They claim that we can learn to deconstruct the habits of the mind in order to obtain an unmediated perception of ultimate reality. But what is it that you perceive then? Void, nothingness. You get rid of all your constructs, there's nothing there, and everything is there. Mm -hmm. So these models of the world are are sort of tricky little things. We can't completely get away from them if if we want to, engage in science and understand human psychology and understand our developmental trajectories, but at the same time, you know, they're not the complete picture. And they're always a model rather than reality itself.
0: Sure. I think um, you know, the, the theories about manifestation and our ability to literally change circumstances and physical matter and, and everything in our life through intention and action, I think plays into this quite significantly in that um, you know, you're talking about these traditions like, I'm, you know, what came to my mind right away was Buddhism. You know, it says go into your meditative space and deconstruct these models <laughs> until you find that nothingness and you'll find comfort in that. Um, but I believe in our, you know, with our Western uh, psychotherapeutic traditions, we could deconstruct um, some of those stories and then reconstruct um, new stories that will facilitate, you know, Um, better functioning in in everyday life. So there's not only the deconstruction, but a remodeling or remolding of a new understanding of how you meet this reality. And I, I believe, I personally believe that, yeah, we need to change this, this uh, consensus reality for sure. But I believe that the individual's ability to change their understanding of reality, regardless of what the majority thinks is a, you know, it's a rarity, but it's something that is there and something we can utilize.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, we can't change reality, but we can change how we perceive it. Mm -hmm. And we can change how we respond to it. We can change how we act upon it. You know, there's a lot of ways in which, you know, it's really our own, you know, frameworks, our own baggage that, you know, our system of perceptions, Mm-hmm. And to the extent that we shift those, which is what, you know, Buddhism talks about, you know, you obtain nirvana, you obtain, you know, happiness, you obtain all these things that we always want by, you know, giving up on the desire to have those things or your notions of what they are. So, I mean, a lot of things that human beings do, you know, bring us into misery and it's, you know, part our expectations that lead us to have some sense of, of fault. And if we change those expectations, we can fundamentally change our experience of the world.
0: Yeah. And that really is that manifestation piece, you know, that you can manifest happiness and joy and regardless of your situation, you can manifest it, um, you know, with with the power of your consciousness and, and taking a look at those models and reconstructing them. You know, it's, it's kind of like putting, um, you know, some real science behind, you know, cognitive restructuring and things like that some real science behind this idea of, you know, manifesting your dreams. Um, Yeah. Oh, I hear the thunder in the background. Nice.
1: Yeah. Well, hopefully we don't lose our signal here, Mm -hmm. but you know, you told me you wanted to, you know, see how it is that, you know, we can sort of develop these better understandings of consciousness. And I'm going to put another term on you. is this notion of neural phenomenology. Mm -hmm. How does, what we know about the neurological functioning of the brain, explain what it is that we experience. And to me, this brings in some you know, very important perspectives that can give us a greater sense of autonomy and control over our experience and consciousness. You know, the idea here is that when the brain functions differently, our experience of the world is different. We also know conversely, when we change our experience of the world, our brain functions differently. You know, you go around with a smile on your face, even if you're not happy, and you you start to change the way your brain's firing. You know, it, the brain responds to the muscles, the muscles respond to our intentions. So there's a two-way street here in which we try to understand the linkages between the phenomenal experience and the neurology. Today, we're getting into you know whole new realms of exploration in this regard. For instance, being able to take advanced meditators into you know, functional magnetic resonance machines, other kinds of brain scanning equipment. Uh, I expect, you know, in the next, you know, within the decade, we're going to see people doing extensive kinds of studies in that respect with psychedelics. I mean, there already are studies that are doing that, that have sort of fundamentally changed, for instance, our understanding of how psychedelics affect the brain. Mm-hmm. Uh, but to me, this is a, a, a good, you know, model for sort of pushing the neurophenomenological phenomenological point of view. How do you view the world when you've just drunk four cups of coffee? Mm -hmm. How do you view the world, you know, if you've been, you know, doing crack cocaine all night? Mm -hmm. How do you view the world when you're on psychedelics? I mean, each of these examples are examples of how neurological functions change our experience. And so I think one of the tools to understanding consciousness is going to be more and more understanding how it is that our malleable neurotransmitter systems can be sort of harnessed or dampened to produce different kinds of experience. I mean, sometimes people do this exogenously. They take a psilocybin mushroom. No, meditators do it by focusing upon specific kinds of mental activities. And no other people can do it, for instance, uh, by just understanding how their brain operates. I developed a technique years ago for falling asleep. And it basically had to do with just focusing all my attention on the basal brain where the sleep centers are located. And I found normally I can just, you know, conk out and with one to two minutes, sometimes less because I just put my attention in the part of the brain that produces a certain form of experience. Sleep. Sure.
0: Yeah. And I, I've, uh, I've developed training tools for my own mind to get me into uh, flow states more quickly and more readily during athletic events, you know, okay. certain routines or mantras or, or, um, you know, almost like superstitious rituals that that you do that just kind of put you right where you've trained your mind to go. Um, so uh, you're you're pretty well published on psychedelics, and that's something that I'm studying right now for my dissertation. Uh, well, I haven't started my dissertation, but um, I just started my PhD at Colorado State uh, University, and I'll be exploring the mystical state through ketamine-assisted psychotherapies. Um, and so, altered states or non-ordinary states of consciousness is, is something that I'm fascinated by. Something that we talk a lot about on this podcast, and something that um, came up from from this paper that you sent me. Um, I'm going to quote you, and then I have a question to go off the quote. So, the quote um, says: "Altered states of consciousness are important for epistemological development since they provide experiences." and evidence inconsistent with the assumptions of traditional epistemologies, expanding the phenomenological experience to be considered. Pretty much saying um, that that these altered states kind of challenge these models that we have in our mind based off of our own culture and our own upbringing and our own individual um, sort of constructs, that these psychedelics shatter that. So my question for you is, can you maybe explain um, how altered states as opposed to like an ordinary state of consciousness or a non-altered state, how can altered states um, help us to understand the process of our construction of reality beyond, uh, you know, as it shows us um, evidence contrary to our our primary consciousness?
1: Well, I mean, I think the first thing I would say is that, you know, a lot of times what psychologists are trying to to explain on one hand is, you know, how the human, you know, brain mind system operates. But then the only thing they want to look at is things that have to do with rational consciousness and language. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're only looking at a narrow sliver of the capacities for experience of human beings. So to me, the first and, and, and perhaps the most important thing that these alter states and the psychedelic states give us is just more data. Mm-hmm. You, you can't start to act like you're explaining how human beings function if you haven't looked at most of these extraordinary Aspects of human experience of the world So, you know the psychedelics and altered states of consciousness are you know first I think important for just Opening up a broader database to be explained and then I think secondly is is giving us tools for exploring these experiences and understanding how it is that we come to engage with them? Mm-hmm. You know, where do these things come from? I mean, people that you know take ayahuasca will say, you know, I, I think I seen things that I-, I never imagined. In fact, they say I can hardly even tell you what it was that I saw. So, I mean, well, where where does this content come from? You know, how is it that we come to you know receive these kinds of visionary aspects of of knowledge? And to me, this is in part brain science. I think ultimately brain science may lead us down a path that's going to give us a better sense of where these kinds of experiences come from. I've proposed in a recent article uh, that sort of takes an evolutionary psychology perspective is that this is probably part of the mimetic brain. This is probably part of our mirror neuron system, that there are some basic ways in which the human brain processes information that simultaneously behavior and visual and emotive all linked together. And in this sense, I think, you know, we're ultimately going to need totally different paradigms that have to do with the way in which people are going to experience the world through the frameworks that are pre-language. Mm-hmm. And that starts to become the challenge. How do we then bring information back from these visual capacities, what I, I would call using other people's turn, a... Representational, or excuse me presentational system information is presented to you rather than represented to you Hmm. and how do we go from these visual experiences back to something that can be shared intersubjectively and and subjected to some kind of you know scientific development
0: sure so yeah and i've heard that talked about a lot um as far as theories of what psychedelics are doing, like opening up our ability to perceive more in our environment that that's always there all the time, but our bandwidth or our, um, our, our filters are up, uh, during, you know, non or during ordinary consciousness. And so these psychedelics kind of open those channels up and allow us to see more of what's really there. But, you know, also another good point too is how do we bring that, that back, what has been shown to us that is already there and, you know, turn it into something that we can share with other people, where they don't think that we're crazy. Um, you know, for seeing something that that you know they would be able to perceive too, if they were able to maybe match that frequency or that wavelength in the within the larger system. You know.
1: Yeah, I think that you know the the model that's emerging about psychedelic effects is you know one that's been around a, a while, which is, you know, the prefrontal cortex, our top-down control of information is compromised, you know, and then secondly, the default mode network that sort of links our, you know, our personal history and our emotions and our sort of, you know, thinking about the past and the future is sort of disrupted. And the, the brain circuitry that normally maintains our internal dialogue, our sort of, talking to ourselves about who we are and what we're doing gets cut off. And then what's happening is that these deep aspects of human cognitive processing, innate modular structures related to the ancient levels of the brain are being freed to mm-hmm. express themselves. And it's not, you know, just the fact that the suppression's removed. It's that they're now being empowered in a way that carries their information to the frontal cortex. And so now we're getting information that's, as I think you suggested, less filtered. It's more part of the innate representat- representational systems.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so, you know, in in some of my past ayahuasca experiences, um, I have, you know, been shown or, uh, yeah, been shown images of, you know, animals from the jungle, you know, serpents and jaguars and things like that, that I've, I've never been to the Amazon myself, you know, and I've also uh, had experiences where I've, I've lived parts of, you know, as a cell inside of a plant, you know, the different life systems of a plant, um, under, under the influence of some of these, um, medicines from the Amazon. And those are, you know, common experiences across people who take this particular medicine. So the idea that, um, you know, some of these gateways or these molecules can open us to um, information that is, that is always there maybe, or maybe contained within the plant is something that is really interesting. Um, but also, you know, with different psychedelic medicines, people will experience similar things, um, such as like with DMT, people see the same DMT entities across trip reports, or uh, like with ayahuasca, certain animal archetypes, um you know people seeing past life experiences that can maybe later be confirmed um or histories that they've never lived um that they're opened up to and being that the person's individual biology doesn't necessarily have a history with amazonian animals or archetypes or or past these past lives uh what do you think might be going on there as far as um yeah, what, what are we tuning into when we when we tune into these things?
1: Well, I mean, the first thing I want to say is that, you know, we shouldn't be naive. I mean, there's hardly anybody that's drunk ayahuasca that hasn't heard about, you know, anaconda and jaguar mm-hmm. motifs. I mean, you know, so whether or not we come from Amazonia, you know, we still have a kind of system of consciousness about these, these substances. But on the other hand, I'll go back to what I was saying previously about these innate modules. I mean, one of them turns out to be animal species recognition. Mm -hmm. And uh, without elaborating on it, I would just say that we have an innate capacity to recognize animal species. And I suspect that the animal species that sort of are most salient are the ones that have had the greatest implications for, you know, human predation, which is to say, you know, anacondas and jaguars, I mean, they've probably collectively, you know, they've eaten more than any, you know, most other animals of human beings. You Mm -hmm. know, you throw in the wolves there, which is another, you know, common motif in shamanism. I mean, they're animals that, you know, clearly pose risk and we're sort of hair triggered to find those kinds of entities. But the other thing I, I would, I would go on to is to say that I mean, consciousness is this, Knowing with it's it's between a, a knower and something known, but there's going to be some Vibrational energy there so whether it's light or sound right. It's a vibration
0: and that's a physical Vib- energy that can be measured Potentially,
1: so I don't know how how easily it would be to measure but the, the, the simple fact is that You know if, if you see something or hear something it's it's a vibrational quality yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, smell, we can talk about pherones and other things, but it's a vibrational quality. And and vibrations transmit in all directions, not just their, you know, vector. And so information that is part of one person's consciousness, it, it has a, a, a reverberatory quality in the universe. And, for instance, if you're interested in issues of, you know, parapsychology and concepts of such as hauntings, there's this notion that people's emotional energies somehow become impregnated in the physical environment and that other people can come there and pick up on those same vibrational energies. So to me, this can also be another way of understanding how it is that we can have consciousness of things that aren't part of our own personal history or biology. Mm. Somebody else had that. It created a vibrational, you know, sort of, standing wave, and that standing wave is in some sense still accessible, even though it may have propagated to other places. So to me, you know, your earlier questions about, you know, some collective consciousness to me might come down to more like some notion that everything that has ever been experienced is still part of the vibrational fabric of the universe. And people who can put themselves into the right receptive state, can access those vibrational energies
0: almost like a it's like a field rather than you know <clears throat> maybe when you <clears throat> excuse me when some people think of an individual consciousness next to collective consciousness it's more like a beam as opposed to like this field where everything is contained and i really like that idea because the idea of the keshic records and and just this this infinite amount of human experience and information that's still out there vibrating that we have the potential, like you said, like some of these lost skills in consciousness where I might be able to tune my, my personal consciousness into the resonance of Albert Einstein, you know, floating somewhere out here in this, in this uh, field. Um, I think that's, that's fascinating being able to do that. What do you think about, um, the idea of other brains influence. So, you know, we we have our brain up here, but we also know that we have our gut brain and the microbiome down there and that there's a lot more neurons um, in our gut than there even are in our brain and intuition and all these things. Um, What do you think maybe our, our gut brain's influence on consciousness is, if there is any at all?
1: Well, I mean, there's lots of different influences, I mean, beginning with, that's where most of our neurotransmitters are mm-hmm. being produced. There's more neurotransmitters in your gut than in your brain. Um, I think the other perspective I would want to put out here is that, you know, we have a variety of energy fields that can be measured with, you know, standard a- electrical sensors that extend, I think, up to 12 to 15 feet from our bodies. Mm-hmm. And our bodies can also perceive those energy fields of other people. I'm I'm sure there's been at times where, you know, you've been around someone that just makes you feel really uncomfortable for some reason you don't know. I mean, you know, this is the physical energy more likely. I mean, we know we have things about you know, you know, gut instincts, you know, and those kinds of notions of intuition. I mean, those are part of these complex physiological systems that aren't necessarily well understood by modern science, but I think traditionally have been sort of used as a, a field device to perceive other energies.
0: It's a way of knowing, like you said. Like That's yeah. what consciousness is. It's a way of knowing what is to be known.
1: And of course, then the question is, how do we get that gut instinct up to something that's cognitive enough to be able to share with others? Or do we just go on what the gut instinct says and do whatever it drives us to do?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point.
1: But let Um, me uh, just sort of address some of the questions that you sort of laid out for me here, since we're kind of coming up on an hour here. Um, You ask about, you know, modern shamanism, you know, how do we use modern shamanism to allow us to move away from Western medicine? And I I think, you know, the first thing is that there, there may be, and I don't know all of it, there may be things that Western medicine really is the only answer for, You know, we shouldn't expect that shamanism is going to, you know, replace Western medicine unless you want to include the entire pharmacopoeia of plant medicines that exist on the planet. We often think of shamans as being, you know, spiritual healers. But in fact, in pre-modern societies, shamans knew plants and they used them. So, you know, that may be one way that we can sort of expand our understanding of what shamanism is. But the other thing I would say, if we want to be able to expand shamanism application to address modern health maladies, I think we have to understand shamanism in a biopsychosocial perspective. And that's why when I did volume two or edition two of shamanism, I changed the subtitle because I thought we really need to understand these linkages among biology, our personal sense of being, and our social relations. And it's a two-way street. You know, taking the right drugs can change how we feel and change how we relate to people. Changing how we relate to people can change how we feel about ourselves, can stimulate different kinds of productions of neurotransmitters. So it's these, you know, complex linkages across levels of the hierarchy of being (coughs) that I think have to be understood to apply shamanism and to be able to do things like apply ritual to modulate the stress response, to change the balance in the autonomic nervous system, to change the habitual reactive patterns of our vagal system, to tune and tone and refine a whole variety of physiological responses, understanding how it is that altered states of consciousness and ritual can enhance our ability to use our intention, to modify these linkages among the biological, psychological, and social levels of human well-being.
0: Mm-hmm. And I've been bringing this question up quite a bit recently on the podcast, and I'd love to hear your point of view. Um, I studied shamanism a lot in, in college as well, and I'm finding that along with this new psychedelic renaissance or renaissance in in, in forward consciousness thinking, um there seems to be quite a bit of appropriation uh happening from the United States as far as appropriating shamanistic cultures and rituals from other um traditions um without you know examining like what our own culture is around altered states and and psychedelics here in the US and I think um you know we're I think it's, it's essential that we, as the West, define for ourselves, you know, what does consciousness mean for us? How are we going to um, bring this into the culture in a way that is meaningful for us, where we're not just stealing from uh, the Amazonians and stealing from uh, the shamans of Siberia and stealing from these other people, although we have a lot that we can learn from those traditions. I agree like around ritual and intention and priming the mind and integration and things like that, but we're not those other cultures. We're the West. You know, we, we come from a background recently where we are so tied in with Western medicine and the idea that a doctor is going to fix me. And we've gotten away from our, uh, our initial ideas of, of self healing like we have to create something new for ourselves, a new culture around, you know, what does is, what is consciousness and altered states mean to us? And so being that you, you have, you know, read extensively into shamanism and you've seen how it has interacted with our culture thus far, what do you think is the best course moving forward? Um, would it behoove us to identify our own culture around this or is it okay for us to to use these traditions that have been around for many thousands of years outside of this context?
1: A well, lot, lot of questions there and a lot of levels to try to address. Mm-hmm. I guess the first thing I, I would say is that, I mean, the Western cultures, you know, Indo-European cultures, for the most part, systematically destroyed shamanism and its vestiges. We lost whatever was part of that cultural heritage for the most part. And we only know that we had shamanism in the past through indirect kinds of information. Um, Secondly, I would say that, you know, some of the information that can inform us about the past are these neurobiological models of shamanism, which is to say an understanding of how shamanism relates to human evolution, human cognition, uh, human, you know, emotional modulation, uh, human social modulation, Basically, the kind of biological models that I have developed and, and presented in my book on shamanism. So, what that then tells us is this is what shamanism is like generically, inherently, biologically, intrinsically. And if we reconstruct that past using other ethnographic cases, other cultures as sort of models to enrich that, we're really only after what it is that we did, had in the past. We're reconstructing. When you come to the issue about, you know, outright cultural appropriation, um, you know, there's some tricky territory here. But I think that within the context of shamanistic traditions, you know, you have to have permission to use people's rituals. You pay for people's, you know, spells sometimes. You pay to use certain chants. You acquire a right that's personal, not necessarily cultural. If you've acquired that right, then from my way of thinking, you know, you are then entitled to use that as was part of your understanding with the person that passed that on to you, which may include that you can sell it or give it, or maybe that you can just use it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but today, we're in a situation in which, you know, we've lost the entheogenic paradigms of the Western world. You know, we may rediscover aspects of them, but, you know, the traditions are gone. You know, the shamanic traditions, you know, were eliminated, you know, five hundred, a thousand years or more ago. So we have to kind of reconstruct and recreate. And I think the predominant model of shamanic learning in the past was that you learn from the spirits. Mm -hmm. So if your shamanic work leads you to relate to the spirit world in a way that invests you with certain kinds of knowledge, be it ritual, be it songs, be it healing. Then in the traditional shamanic worldview, this is yours to use. You may have to pay for it in some way. You may have to, you know, show certain respect. You may have to, you know, engage in certain rituals to, you know, pay those who gave you the information and the abilities, but it's yours to use. And to me, you know, culture appropriation is more when you take something that's, you know, completely from one culture, and now you try to commercialize it on your own. I mean, to me, that's, you know, an aspect of appropriation that probably doesn't even work well. It's not, you know, true to what shamanism was, which is a a biopsychosocial adaptation that took what is sort of inherent to the human condition, but then adapted it to the social circumstances and the individual psychology of the people involved.
0: Wow. So much, uh, that we've covered today and we've barely only scratched the surface of most of these issues. Um, I want to say thank you again for your time. Um, and if people want to reach out to you, if they have more questions, um, or, uh, if you have a website, uh, would you mind um, putting that out there for the listeners to find?
1: Sure. I mean, if you just Google my name, Michael Winkleman, my website will come up as one of the top ones. I'm not the child actor who's dead. My website's michaelwinkelman.com. I've got a bunch of my information there about some of the major books I've published. Uh, If people want to, and you can get in touch with me via email off of my website. If people want to read the academic stuff I've published, whether it's about shamanism or psychedelics or use of psychedelics in addictions treatment or conscious whatever, all those things, almost all of my articles are available on researchgate.net. So go to ResearchGate, Google me, You know, there's probably 130 articles there that cover in much greater depth than what we could do today some of the ideas I've developed over the last 40 years.
0: That's great. And um, I just want to let you know before we get off off, um, the recording, um, here in Colorado, we just formed our first ever uh, Denver Psilocybin Mushroom Policy Review Panel. Um, And I was selected as one of those 11 members um, to help inform the mayor about. you know, all sorts of things from education to training the law enforcement to, um, you know, collecting data on decriminalization, things like that. And they, they chose me because of my uh, my background as a licensed addiction counselor. So I think, you know, in the future, if you'd like to come back on the show, I'd love to pick your brain about um, using these kind of medicines for substance abuse um, and substance dependence issues. I think that's a huge thing Um, that's going to be a big for a big help for all of us, uh, being a former addict myself also. Um, last thing I just wanted to ask you, are you going to be at the consciousness conference in Arizona in April?
1: No, I I don't know if I made it clear, but I'm in Brazil now and I don't make it back to the U S very often.
0: Yeah. Uh, Yeah. No idea. That's great. But, uh, but yeah, I'll be glad to come
1: talk with you sometime about, you know, using the psychedelics for dealing with addictions. Uh, I've got three or four articles published on that, and and just this past year, uh, Ben Sess and I edited a book called Advances in Psychedelic Medicine, and several of the articles in there address the application of psychedelics for uh, either ameliorating or treating addictions problems. So uh, there's a growing paradigm out there, and I think that it's a very important one, and I. I think ultimately we're not going to beat the scourge of addiction until we have effective psychedelic treatment programs for addicts.
0: Yeah. And some would even say that a lot of our mental disorders are addictions, also. You know, um, depression, you know, people get addicted yeah. to, to certain thought patterns, anger, get addicted to certain emotions. So, yeah, I think it's, it's paradigm shifting. Well, I want to thank you for coming on the show again. Uh, thank you for your time. And, um, yeah, I guess that's it. We'll call right. it. Good luck moving forward. Thanks for talking to me. Thank you. Wow, that was an amazing show. Thank you so much, Dr. Winkleman, for coming on. Um, I hope you guys really like that. That expanded my understanding of consciousness quite a bit. And although, you know, I don't agree with necessarily everything Dr. Winkleman proposes, um, like for instance i believe that consciousness is is not uh localized in the brain it's i mean it has something to do with the brain in my opinion being like a tuning fork or or um like some kind of machine that that works with consciousness to give us this subjective experience and perspective but um but i don't believe that um co- the seed of consciousness lies within the brain um just doesn't seem plausible to me because there's a lot of different forms of consciousness and a lot of different um, entities that don't necessarily have brains like ours, but still might have consciousness. So, awesome show. Um And I do want to share this question or this thought I had that uh, that I didn't get a chance to share with Dr. Winkleman or to ask him about. Um so if you listen to the show, obviously, uh, you should have listened to the show if you're already listening to the outro, but, um, so I was thinking, um, so we were talking about waveforms and frequencies and, um, a little bit and, and, part of those energy signatures, I believe are tied in with, uh, consciousness in some way, who knows if that is consciousness itself or if that's just the way it communicates or whatever, Um, But here's the thing I was thinking about, that um, neural correlates or, you know, neurons in the brain, uh, correlates, meaning uh, neurons that uh, have some sort of connection to consciousness. So neural correlates of consciousness um, leading to the creation of various waveforms and frequencies in hertz, producing differing states of consciousness. So uh, this was an idea that I had that possibly... Uh, maybe the neurons and the uh, electrical and chemical and electrochemical signaling going on in the brain. Um, actually the action going on leads to the creation of waveforms and frequencies. So we already know that thoughts um, have waveform outside of our head. So if you think something, it literally leaves your head in a waveform and goes out into the universe. Um, so we know that our brain produces these waveforms and frequencies and that it also absorbs them when they come in as information. So it would make sense that, you know, maybe the action in our brain uh, creates various waveforms and frequencies um, through thought patterns, through, you know, addictions, through experiences, things like that, and maybe sends it sends them out in these hertz um, and possibly, you know, that these... That as the waveform or frequency within the brain changes, as it's having these action potentials, that this might be what's um, producing um, differing states of consciousness. So maybe it's sort of like a like a knob, like a tuning knob. That uh, the more action and, and excite excitivity in the brain, you know, it'll tune it one way, and then uh, you know, if you go into meditation, it'll tune it another way, and then maybe. As you're manipulating the frequencies, uh, the different levels of frequency and hertz uh, up and down in that spectrum, um, by changing the action of your brain, um, you're able to produce different states of consciousness. So um, also to tack on to that, that if there is a, what I like to call a like meets like relationship, um, so this is sort of like uh, well, let me just say what i what I said. If there is a like meets like relationship between our internal consciousness projections and formations couldn't there be a similar action with the waveforms produced in the brain um, in that we open channels for receiving waveforms as well? Let me unpack that a little bit there's a like like meets like relationship between internal conscious projections and formations. So I think this, what I meant by like meets like was sort of like, uh, the, uh, law of attraction type stuff, but it's getting down more into the scientific piece. Um, you know, when you look at wave forms and frequencies and um, they, uh, you can see all sorts of experiments of where people have like bounced two different waveforms at each other. Right. And, um, there's this idea of, you know, and there's probably a term for it too. I just forgot it, but I call it like versus like. So if two waves come at each other, two, yeah, two wave forms come at each other and they're the same size, same frequency, then um, I believe they'll do either three things um, depending on how they like make contact with each other, like what part of the wave is happening when they make contact one is that uh, you know that maybe equal, equal wavelengths will cancel each other out, so you get two waves at the same frequency they hit each other at the right spot, and then they cancel each other out, and they both go flat. Another is that um, uh, two come together and they they hit at a particular point, and then their frequency gets amplified at that point right I can remember like when i 'm wakeboarding. And, um, you know, if my friend cuts across one wake, the two wakes will come together in waveforms. And then there will be a spot where the two waveforms come together in such a way that the wave is much, much higher, like maybe four or five feet above the surface of the water. So you can use that um, that uh, amplification peak of the waveform to really like launch off of it with your wakeboard and get some really serious air. So uh, that's kind of what I mean by that one. And then the third action I believe that can happen is two waveforms of the same frequency come together and they hit in such a way that there's no disruption of either, but that they come into complete alignment with each other. And then, uh, it's almost like a harmony like they just harmonize together. Um, and so they attract each other to each other and and kind of complement. So I think that's what I meant by this like meets like relationship between internal conscious projections and formations, um, Yeah. So, all right. I'm going to leave it there. What a great show. Thank you, Dr. Winkleman, for coming on the show. Uh, Thank you, listeners, for listening. Continue to support us. Like and share all that good stuff. Donate if you like. Go to the YouTube page. Go check out mindops.com. That's M-I-N-D hyphen O-P-S. Make sure you got that hyphen in there, folks. And that's the same with the uh, YouTube page. So go like and subscribe there. And we'll see you guys next time. Peace. Conversations with the Mind podcast is sponsored, as always, by MindOps.com. That's M-I-N-D hyphen O-P-S dot com. Come check us out. We're an eclectic counseling company providing both mental health and mental performance services to individuals, small and large groups, teams, businesses, and military individuals through face-to-face sessions or at a distance using phone or confidential video chat apps. We bring a unique Buddhist Western lens and specialize in general psychotherapy for all mental difficulties, sport and performance psychology for performance enhancement through mental training, addiction counseling for any maladaptive or destructive habits, and psychedelic integration therapy to make the most from your visionary medicine work. We're available as well for corporate workshops to address the needs of your employees' wellness. Thank you for listening to the show, and please go check us out, mindops.com and the MindOps YouTube page.